I listen to all sorts of people, sermons and read books and commentaries and stuff before I study. If there's somebody that I've really listened to a lot and gotten a lot of ideas from, I like to say that on the front end to kind of give credit where credit's due. Uh, tonight's message, I listened to a guy named Tim Keller, a pastor up in New York. You'll hear me say his name a lot because he's, uh, he's a great pastor. And so some of these thoughts are from him. And that's all. So, uh, okay, this semester we're actually jumping in. <clears throat> excuse me. Tonight we're jumping into what we're going to be talking about the whole semester. And it is this. It is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, if you're maybe not that familiar with what that is, that is Jesus's, uh, it's his most famous sermon. He did, he did lots of teachings and lots of different crowds to different people. The Sermon on the Mount kind of stands out in terms of its breadth, just the, the sheer amount of things that he talks about um, in his uh, his critique of certain kinds of people. It stands out for that. Um, and so we're going to look at it this whole semester. And as I mentioned last week, some of you are like, man, 13 weeks, 13 sermons on one sermon. What could sound worse? Um, so i got a little work to do. Hang with me. Uh, so faced with that predicament, I've only got one choice. Um, I'm going to cheat. Okay? So I'm actually starting tonight where Jesus finishes. Because as he finishes his Sermon on the Mount, what he does is he's kind of, he's got his hearers there, whoever's left at the end of this, and he gathers them around, he's saying, here is what I want you to get. Here is what I want you to understand about everything that I've just said. And so for us, what I want us to do is look and say, listen tonight, because tonight, and what Jesus tells us in his sermon is going to give us a grid through which to see and read and listen to everything else that he says over the next 12 weeks in this this passage. Okay? And he wants people to see this, that what he is offering is a completely new way to live. It is literally a new way to be human that is so much broader, so much greater than anything that we would ever dream up on our own. But we might not catch it unless we spend some time kind of pulling apart what he says. So that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to read in just a second. Jesus concludes this sermon by talking about two ways to live. And usually when we're faced with two ways, we look and say, well, I better pick one. And we just we go down that way. What Jesus is saying is that these two ways are two ways to totally do everything in your life. It's not just like, do I go to Taco Bell or Arby's? This is, who am I going to be? And so let's listen as Jesus talks to us in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. He says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, or grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? And then I will de- declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine but does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Let me pray for us for just a moment before we look at this together. God, I pray that you would come in power by your spirit and that you would work through the reading and now the teaching of your word. I pray that uh, anything I say that is not in accord with the truth, I pray that it would vanish. But I pray if there's anything that we're about to say, it is right and it is truthful, and it speaks something true about the way we live and who we are, I pray that it would pierce down deep into our bones, that it would get into the very very inner part of who we are, and that it would affect us and change us. We would be grateful if you do that, because in and of ourselves we're hardened. We're like sheep who have gone astray. But you're the good shepherd, and you bring those sheep home. So would you do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last few pages of uh, C.S. Lewis, kind of famous children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, in the last book, uh, C.S. Lewis captures King Tyrion as he is amazed after he enters into this little shed, which has, until then, it had stood some distance from him. And as he enters into this little, sh- into this little shed, King Tyrion says this, As soon as I had gone in at the door, the first wonder was that I found myself in this great sunlight. Though though the inside of the hovel had looked dark from outside, then I looked about me and saw the sky and the wide lands, and I smelled the sweetness. And I said, by the gods, this is a pleasant place. And he would go on to describe his awe and his wonder at a place, at this little shed, which before he went into it, Just by looking at it from the outside, when he stood on the outside and looked in, he thought, there's nothing to this. It's really nothing more than a little shanty. But when he got in, it was wide, and it was airy, and it was light, and it was beautiful. It's the same feeling that some of you have when you move out of the dorms and into an apartment, right? You're just like, oh my gosh, I've got my own room. I might even have a little kitchenette. Oh my gosh, I've got my own shower. Praise you, Jesus, right? Um, no more lining up in a wall of shower heads, which is just ever disgusting, um, right? But it's that difference of going from just kind of this little space where you're sharing a room where you can touch the other person at all times, it's just not great, to just this life of apartment living, right? Well, um, In this passage, Jesus is talking about this very thing. Because he's talking about the narrow and the wide gate. And when he talks about this at the end of his sermon, Jesus is summarizing everything by saying, there is this little narrow gate which describes a life of trusting and following me. And the road that leads up to this little narrow gate, it's a hard road. It is not easy to go down that road. And it leads to this narrow gate. It's a road, in fact, that, that if, if we think about it, if you are a Christian and you're on it, or if you're not a Christian and you, you see your Christian friends on it, 
you're thinking, why would, why would they do that? And even sometimes as Christians, when we're trying to live for God, we're thinking, what in the world am I doing? This is hard. This is not fun. I look around at my friends who aren't doing this, and they seem to be having a lot more fun. It looks like it kills us and it smothers us at times. He says it's hard. Jesus, look, Jesus tells his, his followers point blank. He says, following me, trusting in me is costly, and it will be difficult. That is a promise that he gives us. And then on the other hand, Jesus talks about the wide gate with an easy way leading up to it. And look, the, the word that he uses for easy, I don't know why the translations pick easy. Um, the best way to describe that word is an idea of spaciousness of pleasantness, of agreeability, just this like all-encompassing, wonderful thing, like your apartment. <laughs> um, it's what you want, space. Yet Jesus says that this spacious way leads to destruction, while the hard way, the narrow gate, in the end, leads it, that leads to spaciousness in life forever. So one that looks wide and spacious comes to a point and it, needs, it leads to narrowness and destruction. But one that is narrow comes to a point that leads to spaciousness in life. And that's kind of what he sets up here as he goes into this. It's counterintuitive. So we need to ask some questions about it. So the first thing is, what do we know about these two ways? What all do we know about those? The second thing is, when do we find out which one is which? Right? When, do, when do we find out which one I'm on or uh, if the one I'm on is the right one? What does that look like? And then for, thirdly, we need to figure out which one are you on. Okay. So the first question then, what do we know about the two ways? Um, if you've been around religious circles much or not, whether they be Christian or any other religion, anytime the speaker says that there are two ways to live, You'll be tempted to think that on one hand is going to be this like angelic, wonderful creature, Mother Teresa person, right? Which is obviously the good person in the story. And then on the other hand, it's like Osama bin Laden or Hitler, right? And the chasm is just massive between them. You're like, oh, which one do you want to be? Um, I think I'll be her. Um, look, but this is what we have to see about what Jesus is doing is that this is not, this is not what Jesus is saying about these two ways. At all. In fact, he says that from the outside, if you look at these two ways, they look the same. Look back at the passage. He uses three different word pictures to describe these two paths leading up to these two gates. He talks about true and false prophets, kind of via the false prophet. And then he kind of morphs that image into this idea of a tree, a good tree and a diseased tree. And then later on, he talks about a house. Houses that by all appearances look the same on the outside, and yet their true worth, their true integrity is found out on the day when the storms come. Just like the trees are found out if it's actually a good tree or a diseased tree when it comes time to bear fruit. And the false prophet is found out when he is actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. The two paths then, which in reality are very different, hard versus easy, Jesus says they look the same. Because of this, we need to understand that it may be hard to know which path someone is on. It may be hard for us to go out into the world and to look at the people around us. We'll save kind of our own self view of self for a minute. 
But it's hard to go out then and look at the people around us at TU or in our lives or maybe in our family. It's hard to actually know what path someone's on. Because Jesus here is saying is that the paths look the same. That these two people or these two things can be doing the same. They can be living the same. They can have a lot of the outward appearance that's, that's the same with each other. Especially at a distance. It's like, it's like an identical twin. You know, they, at a distance, I mean, they look the exact same. And you get up close and realize that maybe one has a freckle or one, you know, has an extra finger. That's weird. But, uh, you know, something. And you realize, oh, they're actually not the exact same person. That's kind of what's going on here. They look the same from a distance. But we have to see, though, that the people on both paths appear to be religious. So, yes, they look the same, but also they appear to be religious. They, they appear to be doing the right thing. Look at verse 22. Jesus looks and says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Oh, no, because this gets scary at this point. <laughs> because, look, you're here. You're at a religious thing. And so by nature of that, you're brought into this story. You're looking at God. If you were to stand before him and say, God, I went to things like RUF, or I went to church, or occasionally I read my Bible, or, you know, whatever it may be that kind of makes you self-identify as being religious, you're kind of in this story at this point. But Jesus comes around at the end and says that there are even those people who did all the right things, who prophesied, who spoke boldly about the things of God, who gave their money away, cast out demons, did many mighty works, whatever it is. And yet at the end, Jesus says, I I didn't know you. Now, I am not doing this to, to bring you into this like, existential crisis of like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm actually a Christian. And like, oh, you're just melting out there in your doubt and all this stuff. That's not why I'm doing this. And that's not why Jesus is doing it. He's not trying to get people who actually are Christians to, to doubt what God has done in your life. So how do we know which road I'm on? How do I know which tree I am, where my foundation is? How do I know which way I'm on? He looks and says, you'll be known by your fruit. In verse 16, he says that. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Uh, Two Christmases ago, uh, we packed up the car and we drove down to Louisiana. My wife's from Louisiana, and we went down there to see her family for about a week and a half or so because you've got to make it worth it when you have kids driving. So we were down there for a long time. And during that time, uh, they had had tons of rain because that's just what happens in Louisiana in the winter. And we noticed one night that their Christmas lights were off. So we're like, oh, okay, well, let's go figure out what's on or what's wrong. So we went out to the garage and realized that, <clears throat> excuse me, the rain had gotten in one of the plugs, one of the outlets, and it had tripped the breaker. Okay, so no big deal. You go turn the breaker back on, Christmas lights come on, Christmas is restored, and Santa comes and all that. Um, well, another thing you have to know about Louisiana is that they love to eat. They love to eat. And my wife's mom loves to cook, especially when people are coming uh, to eat her food. And so she had been telling us for weeks leading up to this that, man, here's what I'm going to make, y'all. I'm going to make this crawfish etouffee. I'm going to make shrimp creole. Like all this stuff. And she told us that she had bought 10 pounds of fresh Gulf shrimp and that she was going to make, I mean, literally like four different dishes with this one kind of haul of shrimp. 
which made me really happy because it's my favorite food. Well, what happened was that when the, when, when the lights tripped the breaker, the outdoor freezer was also on that breaker. And so what it meant is that the freezer had been thawing for, we don't know how long, several days. I made the mistake of opening that freezer door, and y'all, I almost died for what came out at me. <laughs> the smell was just unimaginable. I hope you never go through something like that. It will scar you. Well, so quickly shut the door, headed back inside, and you know, told Sarah's mom, like, hey, bad news out there. Um, the freezer is shot. Uh, it is, everything is thawed. The shrimp are done. And it's just like, oh, no. Well, she went out there a little bit later to clean it, and so she took a, you know, a bottle of 409 or something in one hand and a sponge in the other and uh, to do that nasty, dirty work. Well, I headed, out, I headed out into the garage a moment later and found her out in the garage like 409ing and wiping down the outside of the freezer. And I looked at her and I was like, what are you doing? And she, she's laughing. She's like, I just can't do it. I can't bring myself to open the door and start cleaning what's inside of there. And look, this is exactly what Jesus is saying in a roundabout way, right? He's not talking about shrimp, but he is saying that one day the tree will be known by its fruit. The foundation of the house will be shown for what it is. You can tape you can tape apples to an oak tree, but when the fruit season comes, it's bringing forth acorns. In the same way, you can clean the outside of the freezer, but there is something growing inside of there, and it's going to make its way out. It will be known. It will be shown for what it is. So Jesus says that we can know, we can, we, the only way we know something about someone is the fruit of their life. What is shown forth? What comes out? In that same way, you might be doing the right things. You might be a good guy. Or you might be a sweet girl. You might have had a good family. You might have, your parents told you to do the right things. And you've determined that in college, you're not going to do some of those things. You know, those those things that society has deemed are, are the bad things that Christians can't or shouldn't do. Or that you're not going to give in in that way that some of your friends in the fraternity or sorority or in your hall or maybe from back home that they give in to. You're just not going to do it. You're going to be good. You're going to read your Bible, which I commend. You're going to go to conferences. You're going to go with us to Oklahoma City and help serve the people and more, which I commend. You're going to pray, which is wonderful. And Jesus looks at some of these people in verse 21 and says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. So how do I know which way I'm on? How do I know which way I'm on and when do I find that out? Well, Jesus says in the passage that there's a day coming when everything will be known. In verse 16, the trees will bring forth their fruit. In verse 22, it talks about that day, which is a a loaded phrase used throughout the Bible to talk about there is going to be a final judgment day where everyone goes before Jesus and accounts for what they did in the flesh. The Bible says that there there is this pregnant expectation in all of creation for one day meeting God. Verse 25 says, the storm will come. So there won't be any more fooling, no more deceiving. Everything will be seen for what it is, and everyone will be seen for who they are. 
And there will be those who are on the broad way, as we saw in verse 22, who thought they were on the narrow way. Those who were, who were on that wide, spacious way, who actually self-consciously thought they were doing the right thing. And Jesus says, I, I don't know you. They looked up and they said, we don't get it in our English translation all that well. But three times in verse 22, they say, look, look at all the things we did. We did this. We did this. We did this. It's repeated three times. As to get Jesus' attention and say, Jesus, look at all the stuff we did for you. You're not going to let us in? What the heck? As much as they look like the hard way, narrow gate people, Jesus says they're headed to destruction. I never knew you depart from me. So who can be saved? Who actually gets to stay with Jesus on that day? Who gets to be with Him and enter into His spaciousness in life, which He's holding out here? Obviously, it's not the people who just did the right things. Those who enter in are those who know Him. Those who actually enter into the spaciousness in life that Jesus is offering are those who know Him. On that day, a day that only God knows, who you are and what path you're on will be made known. But you actually don't have to wait until then to know it. It's not this huge gamble until then. It's like, well, I guess maybe we'll see. Yesterday I was um, eating lunch in the cafeteria, and I was talking with a guy from Saudi Arabia. And, uh, I mean, you all know that there's an amazing opportunity to literally talk to people who have never, ever, ever heard about Jesus. And I don't mean like talk about them, like just jam it down their throat. But we kind of interacted a lot. I asked him a lot of questions about his own faith background and kind of this great back and forth. And I was telling him about Jesus and what the Bible says about Jesus. And I looked at him and said, have you ever heard that? And he said, never, never. That's amazing. It gives me chills to think about it. Um, but he was talking about that in his religion, um, in, in Islam, and Saudi Arabia is 99.999% Muslim. Uh, he said that, that you really never know where you stand with Muhammad, or with Allah, rather. You never really know. That, so this life is this perpetual living out the law and obeying the law, or failing to keep the law, but then trying harder. And kind of this, this deal, it's this treadmill thing that just never stops. And I said, what? So if you died tonight, like, what, what would Allah say to you? Or what would you say to him? And he said, I have no idea. <laughs> I think I should think about that. Some of you actually think this is how Christianity works. That God has given us this thing, this Bible, and all it is is a bunch of laws and rules and things to do and things to tell people and all this kind of stuff. And that you just do it, and you do it your best, you try your hardest and all this stuff, and the Jesus thing's in there somewhere, so you know he kind of forgives sin, but really functionally you live as if it all depends on you and what you do. That's not it. I, I have to tell you, that's not what Christianity says. That's not what the Bible says. That's not the message of it. So what is it? It's personal. To know Jesus is a personal thing. It is is a relationship. He offers you something and you receive it. He offers you unmerited love and forgiveness by God the Father in heaven. 
And all you can do is receive it. You can't look at him and say, I did this, I did this, Jesus, I did this. Won't you now reward me? He's saying, here's the reward. I'm giving it to you on the front end. I will make you right with God. And if you get that, if that makes any sense at all to you, of course you'll do things for me. Of course you will. But in order to do that, you have to be poor in spirit. And we're going to talk about this next week in the Beatitudes. Blessed is he who, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who come to God literally spiritually bankrupt. You go before God and you say, I have nothing to bring to you except my filth, my life of running from you. And God says, actually, that's the very thing you needed. That's all you need. That, that, that gives you access to the grace that I'm offering you. And he does. He pours it out. Jesus offers you infinite riches as a son and daughter of the king and heir of everything. So on the surface, people on both paths will be doing the same things, obeying the Ten Commandments, giving to the poor and praying, but for utterly different reasons, and that's where we know it. Some people believe that they're saved by grace through what Jesus has done, while others functionally believe that it is what they are doing that is saving them. And you have to see those are two totally different things. That if all of your efforts at Christian activity or Christian living or whatever are in, in order... To those, you may never tell anyone this, are in order to kind of at the end of the day kind of sit before God and say, man, I had a great day. I did all these things for you, God. Aren't you happy with me? If that's what you're doing, friends, I commend what you're doing. But just know you're on the broad path. As God says, you don't get it. That's not, that's not how this game works. It's not a game. But you're on the other path. To put it another way, the two roads aren't the good people and the bad people. It's those who believe that only Jesus can save you and those who think you can save yourself. And that's why the latter is a broad road, because look, it is full of a lot of people who go to church. And it is full of a lot of religious people. And it's also full of non-religious people. It's full of conservative people and liberal people. It's full of people who think President Obama hung the moon, and it's full of people who think he is the worst president ever. There are so many people on that broad road. And Jesus says it leads to destruction. It's full of people who think Jesus is a good teacher or an example or a prophet, but in the end, he is not their savior. They're trying to save themselves. It is spacious and it is huge. But it leads to narrowness and destruction. But the gospel way is narrow. It is hard. But it leads to spaciousness. It leads to life. It leads to what you want, whether or not you know that. It looks restraining on the outside, but inside, like King Tyrion's little shed, on the inside you realize, this is beautiful. This is way better than I ever thought. It's bright. It's everything I want. So finally, this whole semester, Jesus is going to get us to see that either you enter by the narrow gate and your life has been utterly changed by the grace of God, and so now you live in response to that by doing all of these things that we're going to be talking about over the coming weeks. It affects the way you live morally, sexually, with your money, with your anger. With I mean, it, it literally touches every aspect of everything. It's a new way to be human. 
It's a new way to think about everything that you think about. And he gets us to finally to this point where we say, which one am I on? Which way am I on? Am I on that broad way? Am I just kind of basking in the ease of now that one day there's destruction coming? Or am I willing to walk the hard and narrow way now, putting off spaciousness for later? So why does Jesus do this? Why does he, why does he bring us to this point? He brings us to this point because he wants you to know which road you're on. He doesn't want you to move through life deluded about who you actually are. He wants for you to not be a hypocrite, to just be doing things outwardly, yet in your heart you are far from him. He doesn't want that. He says, look, figure out which road you're on, but then choose this one. (laughs) Choose me. Choose the narrow road because it's going to lead to life. Several years ago, there was a little girl named Jessica who lived somewhere in Texas. And when she was 18 months old, she fell down this tw- 22 feet down this old abandoned uh, oil well like casing, 8-inch casing. She fell 22 feet down this. That's that big. Like the claustrophobia of that, and I'm not even claustrophobic, that would be terrible. The narrowness, I mean, just coming in all around her face. Now, eventually they, I wouldn't talk about it if they didn't get her out because I'd just sit over here and cry, but they got her out. The worst. And yet that was nothing. That was nothing like the pipe that Jesus went down for you. Because though he had the spaciousness of heaven, he entered, he entered the cross. He entered our humanity, crowded and full of sin for you. Though he had perfect fellowship with God, he left that. Infinite in size, became a human. How glorious and free and became constrained on a cross. And he died in shame and disgrace, was bound to a cross. And he did this for you. I'm going to put up here this um, selections from this poem. This is the last thing I'll say. Uh, it's by a, a woman named Lucy Shaw, and it's called Mary's Song. Let me just stand off to the side, and, uh, and we'll read it together. I, not like out loud, but this is how she captures this idea of the gospel and what Jesus does. She says, quiet he lies whose vigor hurled a universe. He sleeps whose eyelids have not closed before. Breathe, mouth, ear, breath, mouth, ears, eyes. He is curtailed who overflowed all skies all years. Older than eternity, now he is new. Now native to earth as I am, nailed to my poor planet. Caught that I might be, that I might be free, blind in my womb to know my darkness ended. Brought to this birth for me to be newborn. And for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. That is the gospel. That in order for you to be mended, for you to be made new and offered life and spaciousness, Jesus had to take the narrowness for you. That's exactly what he did. And it's yours. He offers it to you. You can receive it. You can take it now if you've never had it. But friends, don't come to him and say, look what I've done. Can I have it? He'll say, no. If you come to him with your empty hands and say, I want it, he will say, yes, enter into my kingdom. Let's pray.